So uh, we're digging into the book of Philemon this morning, and then we'll be in a different book next week. So I just want to read Philemon, which might uh, intimidate you until you realize it's only 25 verses, okay? So let me just read it, and then uh, we'll walk through it together uh, as the Lord teaches us. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If anything, uh, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, would you teach us this morning by your word? Would you help us to know what it means to believe your gospel in such a way that it has public power in our world? May you advance your kingdom and your church, even in the small corner of it, by your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to remind you that you can uh, send me questions. Uh, this morning, you can text me your questions, and I will take five to seven minutes after the sermon to answer them. So Philemon uh, is a buddy movie, a prince, uh, kind of prison movie, an epic adventure movie. It's uh, a courtroom drama, and also it's a movie where men are overwhelmed by emotion and tell each other exactly how they feel. It's one of those movies, right? Paul becomes a friend of a slave, Onesimus, while in prison. They become inseparable friends, and in the process, Paul learns that Onesimus was a runaway whose former master, believe it or not, was a man Paul had personally led to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul sends his friend away, Onesimus, back to his former slave master, 
who happens to owe Paul his very life, Philemon. He risks his friend's freedom, but he feels certain that the gospel in Philemon can set Onesimus free. You can imagine them parting in the movie version of this, you know? And Onesimus is holding, I think it's his very life, his most treasured possession, that letter from Paul, as he goes back unsure about what's gonna happen next. And I think it would make a great movie, but I wonder if you brought it to a studio executive, how are they gonna receive this story? I think one great concern they have is that it would be too difficult for the public to accept that the only reason this story happened is that all three people were Christians. I think it would be hard for them to believe that this is why it happens. Not because they don't want to be seen as promoting Christianity, but I think they'd be worried that people watching the movie would have a hard time suspending disbelief. I don't think that stories like this are the public face of Christianity. And if you ask, well, what is the public face? Well, the public face is probably more likely to be like the enforcement of moral manners. The kind of wash your mouth out with soap morality that everyone agrees is probably a good idea, but not mission critical for life on earth, right? For the most part, public faith in Christ, or at least what we tend to see as public faith in Christ, has been a little bit of an embarrassment sometimes. Most of the time, Christianity is only well-known by the pastor or priests who abuse or the big TV preachers that fly around in private jets or the churches that fought against the civil rights movement or pastors and pulpits that are preaching against Nike instead of preaching the gospel. But the problem with uh, the lack of public faith is not just that. It's not just the way that the atheist or the agnostic receives the church or understands it. The problem is that often the Christian who is struggling to bear fruit in their lives the person who's trying to follow Jesus or they're discouraged by their lack of spiritual health or growth, they get encouraged when they see public faith. It reminds them that, oh, this can really happen and it can happen in me. And so the lack of a Christian church with a public faith, that is a Christian church without a Christian ethic, the lack of that Christian ethic is a crisis for everyone. I want you to see in Philemon here, verses 8 through 16, just to start to get a sense for what public faith may look like. He says, although I'm uh, bold enough in Christ to command you, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And he tells Philemon that not only should you receive him, not just by compulsion, but of your own accord, of your own desire that you might receive him back as a beloved brother. In fact, that you might receive him as you receive me. This is incredible. In in other words, Paul says from the very first line there in verse eight, I am bold enough in Christ. What Paul says is that his moral command is derived from a theological truth. Because he stands in Christ, he can command boldly. He has an actual commitment to moral truth in the world because of the way in which he's situated in Christ. In other words, to say this, faith has public power. Faith has public power. A pastor friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ray Kanata, he talks about the way that public faith grows out of a commitment to Christ. And he, he starts to describe how Philemon was so subversive. He says that Christianity establishes the conditions, okay, establishes the conditions whereby believers will be faced with embracing both Christ and their prejudices, only to find their souls shredded by attempting to live with divided hearts, 
Hold on to that for a second. I want to read it again. Christianity establishes the conditions where believers are forced to embrace Christ while still embracing their prejudices. And as they do that, they find themselves shredded by having divided hearts. You can't do both. And Christianity forces us into that condition. Honor everyone, which is kind of part of the command of Philemon. It will shred your soul if you also try to hold to slavery. So that's the motif here in the book of Philemon. The power of the gospel to create a public faith and how it binds some while freeing others, okay? This story about slavery and slaveholding is kind of turned on its head and you find that one person that thought they were free is now bound and the one person that thought they were bound is now free, Public faith binds the free. As soon as Paul says that Onesimus is his child, he views himself as a father, as being responsible, as being connected to this man. Then he calls him Philemon's beloved brother. Now he's starting to bind Philemon. Now there are debates about the character of slavery of this sort in the Roman Empire, but let me tell you, no matter how we compare it to the system that was in place in this country, which was undoubtedly more brutal and violent, at the same time, you can never enslave a peer. You can't enslave a peer. You have to, by necessity, degrade a person in order to remove from them their liberty and force them to serve you. So Paul's language here is stunning. It cuts us to the core. To enslave someone requires a core commitment. At heart, you have to believe that the other person deserves their place. They deserve it. They've earned it. You have to believe that. And that kind of pride and arrogance isn't limited to the issue of slavery in the ancient Near East. It's fruit from the same tree as neglect of the poor or the same interpretive grid that we use in politics. It's the same second commandment violation we talked about in the last series. If we bear God's image and other people bear God's image, we're not allowed to treat them as less than God makes them. Paul is so convinced of this necessity. Note that he says, I could command you to do what is required. I think that line is really important. We may say, oh, it's just, you know, maybe he makes that decision. Maybe he doesn't. It's his choice. Paul is saying, no, no, I could command you to do what is required. Not I could command you to do what's maybe a good idea. This is what's required of you. And he even goes further than that. Paul binds himself. Philemon 17 and 19. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Again, binding Philemon. Treat this person with honor. And then he goes further. If he's wronged you at all or he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul volunteers to become the person who takes on the other person's debt. This is an incredible picture. Paul isn't finished, right? He says, now look, when you, when you receive this person, you're not just receiving him as a peer. Instead, you should receive him with the same honor that Paul has earned among them. This is not unusual for Christian ethics. If you read through Peter's epistles, you'll find that he tells you to honor the emperor, which is stunning when you realize that the emperor was probably Nero. that you should act within the world of Christian ethics in such a way that by honoring everyone, your behavior is subversive 
it changes everything. When Paul says, Philemon, honor Onesimus, honor him like me. He's saying, you don't just now get to treat him like an, uh, like an equal. Actually, you get to treat him like a beloved elder. He elevates Onesimus. Philemon's run off and joined the circus. I mean, this is crazy. He's getting this letter from Paul. You imagine him opening it up. Oh, a letter from my friend Paul. You wait over there, Onesimus. I got a word for you. And then as he starts to read it, he's like, whoa, wait, wait, hang on a second. What's going on? What are you doing here? What are you doing in my life? Honor is how the Christian church has survived for 2,000 years, throwing honor in directions that no one would expect. Christianity shaped the concept of childhood by saying you have to honor children. It shaped the honor of widows and orphans by saying that you have to care for them. It shaped the enemy by saying you have to turn and forgive them. It shaped the concept of the racial minority. Sumerians and Scythians and barbarians were talked about as inheriting Christ in the same way that someone like Paul, who grew up, so to speak, in the church, was embraced. This is public faith at work. This is precisely the kind of public faith that led to some of the most encouraging and titanic shifts in the world history, right? You think about if you take a deep dive into the kind of related to Philemon's conversation here, the elimination of the straight of, of uh, slave trading in the British Empire, you'd find that within the debates in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, you find Christian theology being thrown around. They realized the estimate before they freed all the slaves in the British Empire, they realized that it would cost them half of GDP to do it. Half of their gross domestic product. Can you imagine cutting half of your income? Not only cutting half of your income, but cutting half of the people whom you are representing in government, cutting half of their income too? As a politician? This might have been a different breed of politicians, by the way. <laughs> it's possible. This is incredible to read. This is the way that public faith is at work in the world. It's a dramatic shift. It's upheaval on a national scale. Now, what would be tempting, and this is part of the difficulty in reading Philemon, is that we tend in the Christian church to say, oh, this is just a situation. This is a thing. This is just a thing that happened. It's good to know the history. You know, I'm a history buff. I like hearing the history. This is an interesting historical event. But the problem is, I, I, I can't possibly agree with that. For one reason, why on earth is Philemon here? There's no huge discourse on Christian theology like Romans. There's no beautiful benediction like in the book of Jude, an equally small book, unless you believe that the relationships described here, the conversation, the laying aside of their lives for one another, unless you believe that that's the theological discourse. Unless you realize that Paul's boldness is the benediction. This might be the most useful theology book in the New Testament. Public faith at work. Here's how public faith works. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The intent of public faith. It, it shouldn't be shocking. Do you know what the most expected event ought to be in public life? The second coming of Jesus. 
It should be the thing most expected by people. Well, obviously, there's the second coming of Jesus. Have you seen his people? Those people are convinced that there's a Jesus coming back, and there's crazy stuff going on in their lives, and they're radically, radically loving and caring for one another. So obviously, there's something weirdly supernatural going on. I expect there to be a Jesus coming soon because they said so. Should be expected, as I think, you know, Christianity is often rejected maybe perhaps because it aims too low. If your revolution is about personal piety and only personal piety, being personally moral, it's hard to generate much interest in the world in that. But do justice and mercy and preach the gospel in the world along with acts of mercy and justice, <coughs> pardon, and you will see people paying attention. Love Dr. Cornell West who talks about justice. He says, justice is love in public. It's a great way to understand the way that justice works. It is love in public. We're called to do that. Love in public is a revolutionary act. So this morning as we gather, and we've already, we've, we've been singing songs. We're gonna have the Lord's table in a minute. You know, we're, we're, if we are holding to our Christian theology, then what has happened this morning is nothing short already of a miracle. We have been joined together as God's people and we have created the temple of Jesus on earth. We are all dressed up. The question is, is there anywhere for us to go as the church? Where are the acts of public faith? Now, when I became a Christian, it was in 1992, uh, it was in the back of a 1992 Ford Aerostar driving to church, and I was holding in my hand a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. Now, I have much love for The Four Spiritual Laws, even though I'm not sure I could recite them right now, but there's something missing from the booklet, okay? Here's what's missing from the booklet. If you read it and if you follow it, then in general, it gives the impression that faith in Jesus is primarily like private and spiritual. It's something that lives internally. And so much of your life, you kind of spend trying to get that internal world focused the way that it should, all right? So much focused internally. And yet, the life of the Christian church is very public. Somehow, we've grown to believe that Christianity can be a private, spiritual world. It's like it's a revolution led by librarians, you know? Very polite. Not much impact. We should expect Christian ethics to promote upheaval in our lives. It should throw everything to chaos. I don't like chaos. I have two young children. Chaos is a deep enemy, all right? At the same time, to embrace Jesus Christ is to embrace the idea that somehow a, a kind of productive sort of destruction is necessary in my life. Philemon is what happens when Christianity, it kind of escapes the orbit of personal religious experience and becomes a Christ-centered life. Philemon is what happens when Christianity escapes the orbit of personal spirituality and it becomes real Christian life. This should not be the exception to the rule. We want a Christian life, not simply a Christ-centered hobby, right? So Jesus gives us a little bit more of this when he speaks to a bunch of like Midwesterner types, you know, with uh, normal suburban beige Honda lifes. Sorry, two, two sermons in a row. I mentioned Hondas, my apologies. But 
Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus, the same Jesus who, he's just so sweet, also says this, if anyone would come after me, as we heard earlier, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, whoever would save his life, which sounds like a reasonable thing to do, right? I'm gonna save my life. The person who tries to do that will forever lose his life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's almost incredible that those of us who carry like that very instruction with us in our Bibles could live such tranquil lives. I'm including myself. How do we live such tranquil lives? Following a Jesus of such incredible upheaval. It should concern us. We should ask the question. It's not wrong to have comforts in life. I love finer things. I can't keep them safe from my kids, but I love finer things. I love good food. I love good music. I love a nice wine. I love a beautiful scotch. And I don't just love alcohol. I love other things too. But in loving those things, in loving those things, to be a Christian in the Christian tradition means that I have to hold loosely to beautiful things. Because in following Christ, it may go away. Jesus' words in Matthew 6, you know, those sweet words where Jesus says, what? Don't worry. Don't worry about your life. And we tend to like uh, truncate a lot of what Jesus says there. Like, he just tells me don't worry. Just live in a state of personal spiritual comfort. Don't worry, right? And it's like that scene uh, oh man, I'm going to date myself. In the naked gun, right? This person's like Frank Drebin saying, there's nothing to see here and behind him is like fireworks. Everything's blowing up behind him, right? And in the same way, when God says, hey, don't worry, we tend to think that what he's saying is just be placid. Enjoy your life, even though your hair's on fire, right? But I don't think that's what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is he's saying, what you need to do is you need to rest in me so that you can work. Don't worry. Don't chase after those things because there's something else worth chasing. And the thing worth chasing, he says, is my kingdom. Pursue, seek my kingdom first. He's not giving us chicken soup for the soul. He's sending us out with chicken soup in our belly to do the work, to sling mercy and grace and justice and overturn tables and overturn community ethics to welcome the sojourner and to live generously, to make transcultural, transracial, transpolitical friendships, to be there like one who has been inside a prison and has now been set free. Christianity isn't here to turn our profanity into near profanity. Christianity is here to transform us into the very body of Jesus Christ doing good in the world. This is our calling. We should expect it. If we're going to be bound by an ethic, right, that we call Christ-centered. It can't be this private little Christ-centered world. It has to be public. Jesus' faith was public. His ministry, betrayal, arrest, and abuse, all of it is public. Very public faith. So there's upheaval. We should expect to be bound ourselves by a public faith. Affects our lives, creates upheaval. But also, public faith frees those who are bound. Verse 16 uses this expression, so typical for the Apostle Paul, in the Lord, in Christ. His understanding is that there is a reality that is not of this world. 
in Christ is a, a world that is coming and is descending. And the Christian begins to live as if that's true. It compels us forward, not in duty, but because we are captive to the beauty of that truth in the Lord or in the day of the Lord or the descending world that God is bringing with him. That is, it's truth so good that you gotta move. In my house, when you eat good food, me and one of my daughters, we, we have this trait in, in common. When we eat good food, we move. Can't help it. I don't know where that comes from, all right? It's me and my youngest daughter. We eat, we gotta, so good. When something's so good, it's gotta move you. Okay? When something's so good, it's got to provoke a new response. And so what we see here is that to be in Christ is not just a, oh, that's nice. I know the theological truth. What he's saying is that to free Onesimus, to honor Onesimus, is in accordance with a reality far greater than whatever ledger he's kind of compiled on his life. Where I owe things, where someone owes me, you know, keep and score. He says he doesn't want to order him to do this. Rather, he wants Philemon to enjoy the Christian liberty of telling a slaveholding culture to take a hike. Enjoy that. Pursue that. In the Lord is a term of revolution. Final joy, it's you may kiss the bride. In the Lord's the confetti coming down and we are the champions blaring over the speakers. It's the Christian balloon drop. It's knowing the end from the beginning. In the Lord is looking at what's going to happen and believing it. It's to tap into the glory that is yet to be revealed in the world now. Paul is like, he's telling Philemon, drink perfectly aged wine while the grapes are still growing. All right? Van Gogh painted Starry Night from his room in the asylum down an ear, you know? This is how he painted that beautiful picture. He was in the asylum, but he saw what was really true and beautiful despite it. And that's what he painted. To live in the Lord welcomes joy into the oddest places. This is what public faith looks like. In the Lord, life in the Lord. Now listen. While the world's going to be bound by norms of like token generous, generosity and things like that, you know, you only give to those who can give back or forgiveness only to those who've earned it or raising your kids to compete with their classmates instead of serving and loving their classmates. The world is bound to those norms, but you in Christ are not, you are free. Your public faith is to be freed from those kinds of norms. You are in Christ, which means that you're free to live differently, no matter how your neighbors may whisper about it. If the Bible says that the crucified Christ was an offense to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, then what does the world say when we put the crucified Christ at the heart of how we live our lives? Of course we're going to be foolish. Of course there's going to be some degree of weirdness involved in that. And I think this is one reason why God gives us the church. We are that community, you know, Scrabble players of America, weirdos, right? They can tell us we aren't crazy when we live lives of public love and justice and mercy. What happens when people are, are free? Suddenly, they create a community. I want you to see two passages in the scriptures that show us the community that's created by this kind of suffering and this kind of public faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. But remember the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I wish I could take that one out, right? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, you do, not th- you do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then the last line there in verse 39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not those. We are not those. But we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice that community. We, not I. Not just my personal relationship, us, we. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the Lord, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We share. This is public faith. Those who suffer for proclaiming Christ by seeking to live his life, they become this beautiful, lovely, exiled family. They're so strong in that community that Jesus says even the gates of hell can't prevail against them. This is what you're building here. This family is yours in Christ, but only through a public faith. The church doesn't make sense outside of public faith. Outside of public faith, there's no reason to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Outside of a public faith, it's absurd to confess. It's absurd to look after grace because you got it. You got what you need. It's absurd to live as a part of a community that is feeding you and giving you drink and baptizing you unless it is a starving and thirsty and desperate for grace kind of community. That's it. Let me give you just two quick applications, okay? Here's one. Are you a blessing? Sounds like, you know, tritism, Christian. Uh, Are you a blessing? Blah, blah, blah. Think about it this way. Are you a blessing is, again, an incredibly subversive question. Not are you hashtag blessed. Are you a blessing? The Bible talks a lot about fruitfulness. People often say, oh, well, are you living a fruitful life? You know, are you really doing that? Are you living this other way? Are you really concerned about mercy and justice and stuff? Are you just, are you serious about Jesus and living a fruitful life, right? Is that what you're doing? Let me put a stop to that. The book of Revelation, we see the fruit of the Spirit again. But the fruit of the Spirit is a big tree And the Bible says that it's ripe with fruit for the nations. It's ripe for the picking. The fruit of the Spirit isn't a private decoration. It's a public feast. Your fruitfulness is an invitation to the world to eat. Your fruitfulness is an invitation to the world to eat. Your peace and patience and kindness and goodness and mercy and gentleness and self-control, those are all, have you ever noticed, those are public virtues that people can see and observe. They lead to public good. 
The fruit of the Spirit is not listed as, although these are good things, Bible reading, increased meditative ability, hymn writing, okay? Or the ability to create neat knickknacks that you can sell to your friends. All these things are fine. They're not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are intentionally listed as things that can serve and feed the nations. You nourish the nations. Do the other things. The deep-hearted devotion and prayer. Do it in order that you might be a blessing. So here's one way to start. Are you a blessing? Start this. Pray for fruitfulness for the sake of others. Pray to be fruitful so that others may eat. Here's the second one. Are you pursuing transracial, transpolitical, transcultural friendships or diverse friendships? You can't miss the transcultural reality of the gospel. Public faith is diverse. It's how the world knows that we aren't gathered because we're political allies or because we all love the same sports team or hate the same kinds of people. The world knows it must be Jesus to get these people in the same room. The church has to be diverse in part for that reason. Russ Whitfield, my, fr my good friend, says if Jesus had our lack of cross-cultural love, none of us would be saved. Jesus loves cross-culturally, lives cross-culturally. If we're going to identify ourselves with Jesus, we have to live that kind of community. Well, look, last thing I'll say is this. The work of public faith is going to nourish you. There's not a lot known about Philemon and Onesimus after this letter. Christian tradition holds to the idea that uh, Onesimus might have become the bishop of Ephesus, which is quite an ascension. But what's probably true, what's most likely true, the best that our scholarship tells us is that Onesimus actually goes back in chains. Onesimus is enchained and brought to Rome, and he's martyred there by stoning as a result of his choosing to live a public faith. He chooses his chains. This is the way in which public faith works. His dignity puts him in chains instead of his degradation. He dies in chains not because he was born a slave, but because he was in Christ. Even though he died, he lives. This is the Christian pattern. Christ lived it too. Even though he dies, he lives. And we do too. Even though we die, we live. Presbyterian pastor tells a story of working on a writing project in a cabin in South Carolina. And uh, the cabin was on an old plantation ground. And he was writing uh, a thesis on the letters of Dr. King. And as he was working through it, he started to feel overwhelmed, he said. So I felt overwhelmed by the darkness. And so one Sunday morning, I had to go to church. As he's heading to church, he intentionally said, you know, here I am, I'm like a 40-year-old pastor. I've never been to a black church before in my life. But there happens to be one, an AME church built on the same plantation ground by freed slaves. So he goes. He says he was overwhelmed and exhausted even by the setting he was in the room. He was the only white guy in the room. Now toward the end of the service, he says, everyone started to move to the back of the room. He's left sitting until somebody comes and gets him and says, hey, we're about to have communion. So then he gets up. And he walks with him to the back. He says, I, I was a minister. I've never experienced this before. He's standing in the back, and they line up in two lines and start coming forward for communion together. 
This is again, the only white guy standing in the room. He's in one of the lines. And he says, <clears throat> they start singing to each other on their way to the front. Something like this. There was a woman at the front and she said, give him the praise. And everybody else went, Father, give him the praise. Son, give him the praise. Holy Spirit, give him the praise. Three in one. It just kept doing that. Walking down, give him the praise, Father. As they're walking closer and closer to the Lord's table. And they get to the front of the Lord's table and they start, they eat and they drink and they hug. And he said, I was undone. I've never experienced this before. The black church exists as an exile community and always has. They know what this means. To exist is to have public faith. And he's saying, I get how public faith leads to a real community. And you and I, we are doing the same way. He says, look, I was a white boy who washed up on the shores of this church and they honored me. They took me in. The triune God has spread his wings over us. You are my exiled community. Living public faith for a reality that's going to be revealed, that's going to descend. We are walking together publicly toward the great feast, the redemption of all things, where we are freely, finally bound to Christ and no one can steal us away. We are nourished by our public faith. Join me in prayer.